I'm Carrie Miller, and each week I've got an archived interview with a writer while we wait for a brand new conversation on Fridays. This week, our Big Books and Bold Ideas author is Megan O'Rourke with her new book, A Detective Story, really, about chronic illness. So I thought it would be interesting to hear a 2017 interview with Dr. Danielle Ofri. She practices medicine in New York City. She's remarkably candid and compassionate about the limits and flaws of her profession. This book is titled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, and I hope you'll take something valuable from this discussion. Here's Dr. Ofri. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News, now in-depth on being heard and understood by your doctor. The last time you were in your doctor's office explaining what had brought you in, what was she doing while you talked? Was she typing into a computer, leaning in and listening closely? Did your doctor interrupt just as you were getting to the good part? Dr. Danielle Ofri notes in her new book that for all of the advanced machinery that physicians use to diagnose and treat us, quote, the simple verbal exchange between patient and doctor remains the cornerstone of medical diagnosis. And yet communication between patient and doctor is often deeply ineffective. You'll hear why in this conversation. We're going to talk about what the research reveals about that and how to improve it. But I think you've got a big role in this conversation. I'm, I'm interested in hearing about your experience. Have you had a situation where a meaningful conversation with a doctor made all the difference? I'd like you to tell me about it briefly, if you can, by phone. I've also tweeted out a question on this. So 651-227-6000 to tell me and Dr. Ofri about a discussion with a physician that really made a difference to your overall health, to the treatment plan that was going forward, to the way you thought about your health and your interaction with your doctor. 800-242-2828. Have you also been in a situation where you feel like your doctor just simply hasn't listened? Tell me about that as well. Here's the Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Here's the phone, 651-227-6800-242. 2828. Dr. Danielle Ofri is an internist. She's a professor of medicine at NYU. Her new book is titled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. And Dr. Ofri, welcome back to the show. It's really good to talk to you again. Thank you, Carrie. I want to go right to that that excellent chapter where you talk about how quickly and how often doctors interrupt (laughs) and your own experience, your experiment with not interrupting. And I have to say, I'm an interrupter, too. So I really understand the impulse to want to just, you know, get to the get to the meat of it. What did you find out when you looked at research on this? Well, the research suggests that doctors cut off patients within the first 8 to 10 seconds. Which when you think about it, it's pretty shocking. There's not a lot you can say in 8 seconds. And when I talk about this with, with non-medical with audiences, with um, the general public, they find it very shocking and very rude. Mm-hmm. And I try to explain that I don't think doctors are being rude. I mean, maybe a few are, but mostly I think it's because we have this dogged detective instinct that we want to get to the bottom of something. So if a patient says, I have this pain over here, we jump in. When did it start? When did it end? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And, you know, rushing to get the answer. But of course, the patient may have had a second thing to say. You know, I think I had a stroke last week. We'll never get to that because we cut off so quickly. I mean, you're pretty candid about how (laughs) doctors 
have come to dread the open-ended question. The, well, tell me, <laughs> which I really got a chuckle out of this chapter. I mean, the, tell me how you're feeling. I mean, doctors feel like if you ask a question like that, it will be 15 minutes later and half the visit time is over. But it sounds like the research disputes that. Well, I pose the same question. How long would patients actually speak if we never cut them off? And so I found one study in Switzerland that did exactly that. And in fact, patients only talked for 92 seconds. Not quite the tsunami, I think, that we fear. But, you know, <laughs> right. you know the Swiss, reserved, diplomatic, precise. Maybe they don't have the loquacious gene that we Americans have. And I thought, oh, I'll try this in my clinic and see what happens. So like the first patient, you know, 30 seconds, the second one, 40 seconds, you know, they were pretty healthy. Then a patient with a little back pain, a little cholesterol, 90 seconds. But then came the kicker. And I have this one lovely patient from Argentina who has a million aches and pains. Everything in her body hurts all the time. She's taking care of an ill, cranky mother. She has a difficult boss and a difficult adult child. And so I really fear that if I let her talk, I would never get out of here. But, you know, I can't bias the data. So I said, how can I help you? And, you know, off she went. And, you know, she told me everything in the book. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'm never going to get done. I'm taking notes. But I let her talk. And each time she's paused, I said, anything else? And there always was. But when she finally truly came to the end, I thought, okay, this has been about 12, 20 minutes maybe. It was only four minutes and eight seconds. Wow. I was really surprised. And then when I looked at the list, it was a long list of things, but it was finite. And I think that was what I would really surprise me. I have this image of these patients being an infinite, you know, sea of complaints and issues, but it's actually not. It's finite. And then she said something that I've read about, but never legitimately heard a patient say. She said, just talking about this all has made me feel better. Wow. And that was really eye-opening for me. Absolutely. A call here from Melvin in Minneapolis. Melvin, are, you're studying to be a doctor. Is that right? I am. I am. And thank you for the book. So. I think one of the things I've noticed in my training so far is communicating risk between patients and physicians is especially difficult because maybe we understand it in a different way. You know, you can't, as a patient, 5% get cancer. You still either get it or you don't. But when you're seeing hundreds of patients or, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands over your career, rare risks become actual patients. And maybe people with small risk perceive a small risk differently than other people. What do you think are efficient tools to calculate risk and, and ways to, to reduce or, or things that increase your risks for certain conditions? I think you put your finger on the issue, right? Because for us, the risk is 5%, but the patient's all or none. Either you get the disease or you don't. So I try to talk about, you know, if I give you this medication, um, you know, five heart attacks may be prevented, you know, but the other 95 people get no benefit from the medication. So if you're one of the five, this was great. If you're one of the 95, it's not, you know, you get nothing except maybe the side effects and try to put it in, in those terms. Um, and how much of a risk taker are you? Because people do approach risk differently. Um, trying to sort of draw pictures, you know, in, in, in graph form, but very much try to, to indicate the number of people per 100 or per 10 who might be affected. Positive or negative can be a more concrete way than, you know, 10-year survival rate, which is a meaningless thing for most patients. You know, I think Melvin's question is such a good one, Dr. Ofri, because I feel like 
you know, f- most patients patients would say, sure, the statistics are important, but as you've noted, I want to know what this means for me. And I wonder if, as the level of risk goes up, doctors retreat more and more behind the statistics and withdraw a bit from that personal consideration that most patients want as the risk increases. Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, it's funny. I almost think of it as the reverse. When the risk is high, I think we may be more consonant with our patients in that something needs to be done. But when the risk is low, let's say yeah, someone gets a CAT scan for you know, upset stomach, and they find an incidental, you know, mass in the adrenal. We call these incidentalomas. Mm -hmm. And a tiny minority will be cancerous, and 99% will not be. And so, well, how much further investigation should we do? We can do three more CAT scans every six months. But of course, the radiation from that is also dangerous. So we try to talk about, and many patients say, well, I want to know. I want every CAT scan in, in the book. But I try to you know, explain that if we do enough CAT scans, we'll cause a cancer in at least someone, mm-hmm. and that could be you. And so we have to, when the risk is low, it's very hard to convey the risk benefit. Whereas if the risk is high, then I'm usually on the same page with the patient and want to go forward with uh, investigation. And, and and I hear that, and I I think that may be you with your very good and learned communication skills. But one of the things that you do write about is how uncomfortable some physicians get with. You know, maybe there's a terminal element in, in you know, in, in in the health prognosis and that and we've had other physicians on the show talk about how uncomfortable doctors are talking to their patients about a very, very serious health situation. Has that gotten any I mean, better, do you think? You know, nobody wants to talk about death. No one wants to tell someone else that you will die of a disease. It's it's We're human beings, and, and we resist from that. And you can see that in the way we often obfuscate. We may not say cancer. Maybe we'll say there's been a tumor or a mass or a spot on the lung mm-hmm. before we can bring ourselves to say what something really is. I think it's beginning to get better as there is more training and communication skills. And I think as we also recognize, we need to first start with where the patient is. So I will sometimes say to a patient first, you know, what do you understand thus far of the illness? Or what do you think is going on to get their background? And maybe it's something not as serious, but they're thinking that it might be cancer. And then we get to reassure them that it's not. Or they're convinced that it's cancer. And and then we can say, well, in fact, that is what, what it is. So assessing where the patient is coming from and also how much they want to know. Not every patient wants every single gory detail, but some do. Mm. And so I give the patient the option of how much they want to know now. We can do some of it now and some of it, you know, next time. Some patients would prefer if their adult child or someone else in the family get the gritty details and they just get the general diagnosis. So it's fair to ask first before we unload all the difficult information. Clara says on Twitter, in high school, I went to my doctor about depression. He told me God doesn't give people more than they can handle. I'm an atheist, she adds. Uh, Joan says, I give a list to my doctor. I always felt I can't waste their time and walk out without getting to what brought me there. And Gary in Minneapolis is on the phone lines. Hey, Gary. Hi. Good morning, you guys. Uh, Wonderful program. I just wanted to say a couple of quick things. First of all, a shout out to Dr. Michael Pleasance uh, at uh, the Fairview Uptown Clinic. He's been my provider for over 20 years, and unfortunately, he is retiring today. Wow. One of the things I wanted to uh, reflect on is the fact that when I would uh, see Michael, 
uh, he was always willing to allow me to express whatever my concerns was in their entirety. If I had a list, it was great. And then we would sit and more or less trying to determine, okay, what are the priorities here? Uh, what is it we need to do to determine how to get to the root of the uh, cause of uh, your complaint? And specifically, uh, approximately a year and a half ago, I thought I might have a hiatal hernia. He was willing to uh, order an MRI, and in the course of the investigation, I didn't have a hiatal hernia, but it turns out that I wound up with prostate cancer instead. But it was caught relatively early, and it wasn't what we were looking for. Now, I just heard the comment that in the majority of these cases, you know, scans may not detect something of that uh, nature, but in my case, we weren't looking for it, and fortunately, we found it when we did. Hmm. And so I think it's incumbent upon the provider to be thoughtful and to uh, not jump to conclusions, but at the same time to be willing to look for the potential issue and be open to the fact that something else may turn up that could be serious in nature. And okay. in my case, that's exactly what happened. Good to have the call, Gary. What do you, what do you hear in that, Dr. Ofrey? Well, it's interesting because I, I have a, another take on that. So, you know, the issue of prostate cancer, many men will die happily of their heart attacks and strokes with a prostate cancer in place that has never, you know, bothered them and would never know about it, except if, you know, it comes up in some, you know, other, you know, method of investigation as, as it happened for this caller. Now, we can't predict whether that prostate cancer is the kind that would be aggressive and needs active treatment or the kind that will do nothing and just hang out. If it was the latter kind, finding it may actually not have been helpful for the patient because then they have a lifetime with an extra diagnosis and concern about cancer that wasn't destined to bother them. So that's a whole issue of you know, how we make diagnoses. But I do think the caller's point is right on about having the chance to feel out what the patient's priorities are, because they could be different from the doctor's priorities. The doctor might be focused on getting the cholesterol down, but the patient's really concerned, you know, about a problem in their family, and that's what's really occupying their life and causing their stress to go up and their blood pressure to go up. So, Helping uh, patients prioritize is extremely important. I want to note one more thing that you write about, about the basics of communication between doctor and patient. You looked at a lot of research and, and I think also tapped into your own experience with this. Distraction really impairs the quality of the story the patient tells. Now, I pictured that as you're sitting in the examining room your doctor is taking notes, I mean, listening to you with one ear, but also taking notes on the computer. And that may really change the way the patient is telling the story of what's going on. Yes? Yeah, I mean, there's been wonderful research about the role uh, of the listener on the uh, quality of the speaker. And, you know, when, when, a, when someone's not listening, the speaker's story begins to fall apart. You know, if you're talking to someone and they're busy at their phone or, you know, looking elsewhere, you'll kind of stop and start and, and maybe retell the story. And so I think that we as physicians, as the listener, we don't recognize that our behavior affects the quality of the patient's story, which, of course, is the most important data for the diagnosis. So when we're busy typing, our patients, we're not making eye contact. They may think we're not listening. They just start to ramble. They lose track of what they're doing. So I recommend to physicians for the first minute to not write, to look at the patient, and I call it kind of full frontal listening. And you'd be amazed at 
one full minute of straight-on listening is quite powerful,、mm-hmm. and I think most patients can get out the meat of what's important. They also recognize that you're really hearing them. And then I say something like, you know, I don't want to miss what you're saying. Would you mind if I take notes while you speak so I can catch it all? Then I've kind of incorporated the computer as a necessary evil, as a, you know, an instrument of our <laughs>、uh, of note taking. But we've had that initial, you know, investment in in、uh, good communication, and I think that really can pay off. If you've just tuned into the discussion, Dr. Danielle Ofri is with us, and she's out with a new book called "What Patients Say." What doctors hear, as I noted, she's tapping into a lot of her own clinical experience, but she's looking at a lot of research. It is fascinating about where the miscommunication happens. I, I want to say, not always the doctor's fault, not always the patient's fault. It's just we've gotten into kind of rote roles here, and Dr. Ofri is looking at ways to improve that communication. And you hear her. Uh, you know, advising some of that,、uh, saying, suggesting to doctors that they spend one full minute just looking eye contact with the patient, and some of the other ways that perhaps we can have better communications with our doctors. Six five one two two seven six thousand. I was asking you for your experience of maybe a conversation or a relationship with a physician that has really made all the difference. In your health, and then perhaps you've had a, a an experience, and I'm hearing about some of this on Twitter, with physicians that just simply are not good listeners, and that's made a big difference to the way that you think about your healthcare. And Leah says here,、uh, due to the poor communication, I've moved healthcare systems to have more specialty options, and that isn't my first choice. It's a real pain to coordinate care between systems and insurance. I've tried a few times with this doc and. I'm already fearful, knowing how he or she feels and not having the、uh, terminology. Oh, I think I was mixing up a couple of、uh, of tweets there. She's saying she's had some unhelpful and stressful conversations with her endocrinologist, and that that's really frustrating. Six five one two two seven six thousand to join us eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight into the phones to Melissa in Minneapolis. Hey, Melissa. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Hi,、um, doing well. So I had a I had a really unhelpful situation about when I was 25. I had I got E. coli、mm-hmm. and almost died because of kidney failure. But my doctors looked at me and said, "Well, you're 25, so that doesn't happen to 25 year olds. So you must have streptococcal pneumonia." So they did chest X-rays and they that was clear. So then they said, "Well, you must have meningitis." And so I wound up getting a spinal tap. And in the end, they finally were like, "Oh, you're having kidney failure." Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was because they looked at me and said, "You don't fit the profile."、Hmm. So it, you know, so it wasn't even a matter of the doctor not listening because I wasn't in a position to really communicate very well at that point. It, it was just based on their own presumptions of what somebody my age should be presenting with. Yeah,、uh, Doctor Ofri, that probably happens more than we'd like to think. I, I think it does, and there's a couple of elements in there. One is. Well, we use sort of mental shortcuts or heuristics of you know what typically presents at different ages, and it's not incorrect to do that because you know you might not expect dementia in a twenty-year-old, but if someone is seventy and having forgetfulness, it probably more likely is dementia. But there's also bias, and we doctors have plenty of biases. We have racial biases, ethnic biases, gender biases. Um, bias about body size. We treat obese patients differently than normal weight patients.、Um, elder bias, um, uh, transgender,、um, lesbian, gay bias. It's all been documented, unfortunately. 
And it, that's very hard to eradicate, because many times it's very unconscious. I think when we think about illness in typical age groups, that may be conscious. Oh, lupus tends to present more in women, more at this age, so we'll do that. But then, the unconscious bias is much more difficult to route out. But studies show that we give definitely poor quality of medical care. To minorities in general, less aggressive pain management, cancer treatment, fewer cardiac casts, and the list is depressingly long. You know, you wrote about an experience I think you had with sharing some, or, or perhaps you were you were tempted to share some personal information about yourself. Not super personal, but just to weave in your own life experience with an interaction with a patient. Overall. Uh, it, it sounds like, oddly, patients are not all that comfortable with the idea of that. Don't didn't you write that they give lower satisfaction scores? They, they do counterintuitively when yeah. when doctors share their personal experiences, and I think it comes down to this very fine line. I think that. Patients want their doctors to be human beings and to be able to empathize. But when we share too much of ourselves, we often steal the spotlight.、Uh -huh. And I had an experience once with a patient where it did backfire.、Um, a, a lovely woman, but she was very lonely in her life, and she noticed that I didn't have any pictures of my kids that were recent in my office. And she said, "Well, you know, how are your kids? You know, do you have any recent pictures?" And I, I had one on my phone. I thought,、oh, "Okay, you know, I'll just show her. She's I know her for a long time." And she looked and said, "Oh." What a happy family! Your husband looks like such a nice person. Now, of course, she can't tell any of that from a picture, <laughs> but I think she was projecting her own loneliness onto that and and envy. And I felt, oh, I've done her a disservice. This wasn't helpful. This actually, I think, became more stressful for her. So、um, I'm a little more careful when a patient asks about my life. I try to figure out why are they asking, and not that I withhold. You know, per se, I'm, I'm I'm happy to you know to be a human being, but sometimes. The interest is、um, representing a loss in their life, and I want to focus on what that loss and what that difficult、right. situation is for them, and not be blabbing on about my personal life. A call here from Maggie in Minneapolis. Maggie, thanks so much for waiting. Sure.、Um, you know, I just wanted to add on to that as well. My doctor and I go way back. Her name is Dr. Patricia Huberty. She is wonderful, and we've been together for 15 years.、Hmm. And we, because of that 15 years, we've been able to establish a relationship where she has come in and said, "Oh, so nice to see you. It's been a rough day," and、um, and then she's, but she's also very willing to have those uncomfortable conversations with me, where she's like, "You have to get your weight down," and then she goes over the myriad of problems that can happen, and she's, "You are what you eat," and that just kind of relates to the fact that it's very uncomfortable for a doctor to tell you where you, if you're if you're dying. It's also hard for a doctor to tell you to be better to yourself. Definitely, definitely. My、Boy. friends are all like, "Your doctor tells you to lose weight." <laughs> yes, that's their job.、Um, so, I've lost thirty pounds. I've kept it off. Oh, way、and、to every go! Every time I see her, she's like, "I'm so proud of you." And and then she gives you the stats of what your body is doing for you when you lose weight. Wow, Maggie, I'm so glad you called, Doctor Ofri. We've had many conversations on this show about the things that doctors don't want to have to say. To patients, so it sounds like Maggie's doctor is a standout on that. Well, I think one important thing is long-term relationship, and I, I can't emphasize that enough—the value in a relationship over time. I mean, one visit is very hard to make an assessment about communication skills or,、um, or abilities, but it's really over time that we start to develop, I think, good communication. And again, I have patients that go back ten, fifteen, even twenty years, and. 
I know them very well. And I know right away when something is wrong. And and they do too. We we, we joke that we've you know we've outlived our friends' marriages and and various mm-hmm. healthcare reforms, and you know we're. We're still around, and um, there's such value in that because then it's easier to be honest um, when there's a difficult thing. And my patients trust that I'll tell them when there is uncomfortable news, and I'll trust that they'll tell me when something is up and not you know, withhold an important symptom that I need to know about. Call here from Evan in Walker. Hey, good morning, Evan. Thanks for waiting. Hey, good morning. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, I'm a registered nurse pursuing my doctoral degree and I just wanted to say that, you know, sometimes we forget that there's usually a gap in education between patient and provider. And sometimes what the patient is saying isn't uh, understood necessarily by the provider. And sometimes what the provider is saying uh, is also not communicated properly. And so sometimes as the nurse, we're acting almost as an interpreter, if you will, listening to the patient, advocating for them uh, to the provider and taking some of the medical jargon from the provider and making it understandable to the patient as well. That's a really important point. I think that doctors um, and many medical people often forget that we speak in shorthand and jargon in words that aren't in the English language. We say MI instead of heart attack or a patient's decompensated, you know, liver failure that isn't really an English word. And and we forget that their patients aren't following what an arrhythmia might be. And so one thing the research uh, suggests is that we try to match where our patients are, especially in terms that may refer to excretory functions or sexual functions, to really use terms that, that patients use and, and, and match their level and also ask, um, how much do you understand of what we've just spoken about? Or can you tell me the three things that we've talked about to be, care- to, you know, to be aware of? I mean, I had one patient who um, had very difficult uh, time with his medications. And each time he came, I would make better and more beautiful medication lists. And I thought, I'm really doing the right thing here. We have all these important protocols about medication adherence. And it took more than a year that he confessed to me that he couldn't read. And he was too embarrassed to say something. So I'm making all these beautiful lists, but he can't read the list. So now I try to inquire about my patient's educational level in, in a you know non-confrontational way. Is, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? How far did you go in school? Where do you live? Just so I know, because if someone hasn't uh, had a you know, big education, they may not understand some very basic terms. So I want to make sure that the educational materials I give them are conversational levels appropriate to that. I appreciated your candor with, with some of the patients that you've had over the years that where, where it didn't go especially well, where you've looked back and said, I wasn't at my best with that patient. And I've got your book actually open to the chapter where you talk about uh, Mrs. Fuller, Ms. Fuller, Kim Fuller, I think is her name. And she says to you, um, you know, someone had said you were a good doctor and she's looking at the wall when she says this to you. But I wasn't impressed. My previous doctor, even though he was just a resident in training, was much better than you. What, what did you find out about what had gone wrong in that situation, Dr. Ofri? Right. That was uh, quite an experience. I'd seen her once before, and I you know, glanced at the chart before she comes, and I didn't remember because it's been you know, a long time. And basically, healthy woman, she was very angry when she came in. And when she said that, I was thinking, boy, what did I do wrong last time? And I look again at the chart and again, no indication. And it turns out that I had forgotten to do a physical exam. And I think, wow, how did that happen? Either I was too busy or distracted or something. 
But that's part of the visit. Now, the truth is, the research shows that the physical exam is not necessarily that valuable in a healthy patient. And I could probably cite the studies from Ms. Fuller that it wasn't actually necessary. But her perception, and rightly so, is that I didn't do a complete visit. And that really, you know, went down in her book. I was impressed that she came back. I know. And told me because I would never have known. <laughs> and then I could at least own up and say, you're right, I, I slipped. I forgot that, you know, can we try again? And I think that so often we don't ever get the feedback. And I'm grateful that she had the courage to come back and tell me. I think many patients wouldn't. I don't know if I would have the courage. I would just leave and go find another exactly. doctor. Exactly. Right. And the doctor would never know what had happened. I mean, it sounds like... Some of the most difficult interactions that you've had with patients have really changed you as a doctor, which is a great thing. Well, I think we remember, you know, our failures when we've made a misdiagnosis or made a medical error or insulted a patient inadvertently or or done a poor job of communicating a a diagnosis to someone. We remember those because we, I think most people in medicine, want to do the right thing for their patients. They're not out there to, you know, to to ruin things. And so it it does stay with us. I mean, I've probably forgotten the millions of blood pressure checks I've done, but I haven't forgotten the times where I've really messed up. I want to get a call here from Tara in Minneapolis. Hey, Tara, hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I am currently uh, battling metastatic breast cancer. And my oncologist, Dr. David King, up in Fridley, he's awesome. Uh, he, whenever I have an appointment, he has a scribe in the room mm. who's taking the notes. So when we're talking, he isn't, he isn't um, you know, distracted by the computer or um, looking away from me. He's always face-to-face, and we talk, and he listens and gives, you know, wonderful care. And I just thought you know, maybe more doctors would be able to do that, you know, have the scribe in the room to take the notes. Yeah. So that... That's a, it's a wonderful listen. idea. I think it comes down to cost. You know, it's it's employing a whole additional person, which many places can't or won't a lot money for. Although I sometimes wonder um, when patients want to talk about very personal things, if they would want a third person in the room, even sort of an anonymous third person. When people want to talk about sexual dysfunction, domestic violence, uh, history of rape, all of these things that are very tender, very awkward, I wonder, and I don't know if there's any research on this, if patients are less likely to talk about them when there's another party in the room. Well, you know, Dr. Ophry, the Tara is still there, I think. Tara, yeah? Yes, I Okay. Yes. This is what I wondered. If when you get to, I don't know, some of the more difficult conversations about your prognosis, does it inhibit you at all that there's a third person in the room? Well, not for me because I am a nurse. Ah, so I understand okay. the importance of being completely honest. And I understand the importance of that person being there. And so for me, it's, it it hasn't affected me. And she, um, the scribe who's in the room, she's so quiet and doesn't respond at all. So you kind of forget she's there sometimes. I'm really glad for your call. Thanks so much, Tara. Yeah. Dr. Ofri, it took us a while to make this happen between your schedule and mine. I'm so glad we did. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Carrie. Dr. Daniel Ofri's book is called What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. I wrote a thread must read about it a couple months ago. You can find it on the thread page, and it's an excellent book. Take it to your doctor the next time you have an appointment.